All right, thanks, Philip. I'm Cameron. I'm the lead pastor here at Christ Community Church, and we're continuing our journey through First and Second Peter, First Peter first. Uh, and so we are in verses three through nine. If you if you would go ahead and be turning to your Bibles, and as you're turning there, uh, I'm going to ask you a couple of questions because there's things that we need to continue to kind of think about and keep moving with us as we go through these letters. And if we forget them, it can cause us uh, to maybe misunderstand what Peter is saying or get confused. And so this is a part where you get to participate, children included. So if you know the answer, you can actually be fairly loud this morning. Uh, They're worshiping the God of baseball and being fairly loud. So we're not going to compete in Toto, but at least we can do a little something, right? Uh, All right. So when, when Peter identifies himself as an apostle... What does that mean that he has witnessed? The resurrection of Christ in particular. Now, he also saw the life of Christ, but it's, it's uniquely the resurrection that sets him apart to bear witness to the resurrection and to be chosen uh, for the office that he was called to because there was a number of people who saw Christ in his resurrection that were not called apostles. Um, but they, they could have been had they been chosen for that office. Right, And so when he talks, everything he is saying comes with the freight of having witnessed the risen Christ, which is why in his letters, the resurrection is so foundational and so important. He then identifies his audience in two ways, and they're defined by something first. Uh, And what's the term that he uses for them? It's two words. Uh, I don't know if he understood English uh, alliteration yet, but uh, what, what does he call them? Come on, somebody, everybody get involved. Elect, elect exiles, right. Now, here's what's interesting about that. What first, what relationship defines them first? The elect part, which means what? God. Their relationship with God is the most definitive and important aspect of who they are. It is the most definitive aspect of who you are. And remember, as much as we wrestle with that word election, and again, we're not going to clear that up in just a short, uh, short period of time, but what it means more than anything else is that God in great mercy and grace has chosen you who didn't deserve it. That's critical because I think that we oftentimes start from a point of deservedness or at least neutrality, which just isn't true right? And so what's interesting about that is you may say, well, see, that's all, that's all that southern old-time fire and brimstone religion. You're always trying to make people feel bad about themselves. Not if I'm calling you elect, I'm not. Not if you are of the elect. In fact, that means that you are most precious in all of the universe to God the Father. You are one of his children. You are an heir. And that doesn't mean that you're better than anybody else. That means you've got something you ought to give away. That's why when we read the confession, it talks about being the kind of people who recognize their own mission. Because some of you may struggle with language like uh, a spiritual race, a chosen race. What are we, what is this, South Africa, something strange? What are we doing? No, 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 that's talking about beyond color, beyond national boundaries. That is to be chosen as something cosmic. Maybe you struggle with that word nation in there. Maybe you thought we were fixing to sing some Lee Greenwood a good Canadian who wrote one of the finest American hymns, right? Uh, No, that nation is not talking about America. It's talking about something that is without borders and that's coming. It's a new heavens, a new earth. We are residents of that kingdom, not any of the ones that won't last here. 
and haven't so far. And so in that language, what we recognize is we are a people who've been chosen for mission. And if you don't understand that you've been chosen for mission and you don't get that you're being invited into an eternal work that has meaning and value beyond beyond anything you could do in your own strength, you will miss the entire point of what Peter is saying to you. And that's just in that first word. Now, there's a second word that follows elect. It talks about their relationship to what? The world. The first defining aspect is relationship to God. The second defines their relationship to the world. Who are they in reference to the world? They're exiles. What does that mean? There's got to be a good Baptist in here. This world's not my home. I'm just passing through. Right? Nobody heard that song. We're doing that next week. So get you guys caught up to speed. Uh, <laughs> just for my own soul, my own former Baptist soul. Uh, and so this world is not our home, and other scriptures tell us that. Now, again, you could say, well, wait a second. Doesn't that make us of, of such heavenly mindedness that we are of no earthly good? Well, Peter's going to push hard against that concept, especially as he talks about suffering. And he gets into how then we should live in light of our definitive status as elect exiles. He's also going to define for us a little bit further, even more, something that's foundational. Remember what we talked about in Malachi, how there's, there's indicatives and there's imperatives. And the indicative always serves as foundational, and the indicative always is in relationship to God's love for us. If you try to do anything outside of the love of God, it's only going to lead you to either self-righteousness or, or debauchery or something. It's going to lead you far from him because you cannot impress God. He created from nothing. You're just not going to do better than that. So if you think there's anything you can brag about, you're off base already. You've got it twisted before you can even talk about the imperative or how then we should live in light of the gospel. And so he's making it very clear to them that you are other than in this world, but you are other than for the purpose of drawing people to the Father. You are set apart for a purpose, not set apart to go live on a hill far away with your lamp under a bushel. And that's every single one of us in here. If you're a Christian, you have been given a gift of some kind. If you are a Christian, you are definitively indwelt by the Holy Spirit. If you are a Christian, you have been invited into the great mission that is the redemption of this world for the life of this world so that God would be glorified in all things. Each of us has a different role to play. Each of us has different gifts and and ways in which we will live that out. But if we don't, if, if being a Christian doesn't have something to say about those things, then I question whether or not, and this is going to sound harsh for a second, whether or not you're even a Christian. Because to be a Christian is to be about those things. Now, the hard part is we've heard it in such strong, like some of you just heard me say, if, if you don't go out and track bomb this, if we're, in fact, let's just empty the place out. Let's go tell these people they worship the wrong God and they're all going to hell and invite them in and give them one chance. That's not what I'm saying. I'm not saying we're all gifted to do that. Some of you might be. I'd like you to stay here for now and let's work some other things out. But, but maybe what you heard was if you're, not, if you're not going overseas, if you're not doing all these wonderful things, then you're not on mission for God and that would be patently untrue. 
patently untrue, which is why we say often, before you go trying to add something to your life or sell all, all of your possessions and get the first ticket to, to Rohingya that you can come up with, hang on a second. Because what you might want to do is try to leverage what you already have and figure out within the frame of where you already are, because remember, God is sovereign, and that's good news, and he's placed you where you are for a reason. Now, did I just say you can't move or change jobs? No, because he's sovereign, and sometimes he moves you and changes jobs. And uh, it is important that we, we try, to, try to look at what we already have at our disposal instead of trying to think in such grandiose terms. We wax arrogant fast, and because we have a lot of quit in us, we give up quick. So be careful of that pendulum swing that is so common that, that Satan, if you think about it, he's not omniscient, he's not omnipresent, he's got to use what few opportunities he has, so if he can just get your pendulum swinging in motion, he can go work on something else. Because once your pendulum swings toward the arrogant, he knows you will crash and burn. And when you crash and burn, he doesn't even have to come back and check on you. You'll be so discouraged and so despairing, and it'll last for decades. He gets the most bang for his buck out of that one. So be aware of it within yourself. So that's why I say first, before we go making grandiose changes and decisions, look what you have at your disposal first. Usually what it requires is some measure of intentionality a remembering of your theology, a consideration of the indicative before you go trying to do all these imperatives, all right? So this morning, what we want to do is, is Peter's going to advance us a little bit here. He's going to give us the foundation. That's why we sang the song, How Firm a Foundation. He's going to give us a firm foundation, and the firm foundation for him is Christ's resurrection. So here's what I want you to get from the sermon this morning. Christ's resurrection serves as our firm foundation, which transforms us to a living hope, eternally securing our salvation, and grants meaning to our guaranteed suffering as elect exiles in a fallen world. Let me read that again. Christ's resurrection serves as our firm foundation, which transforms us to a living hope, eternally securing our salvation, and grants meaning to our guaranteed suffering as elect exiles in a fallen world. So here's the first question that I have for you this morning, and it is well worth your consideration. From young to old, all of you have uh, some sort of, of, of foundational thought or saying or song or TV show or snippet from a movie that helps you decide how you live in this world. So what serves as foundational to what you know and how you know it, and then how you live it out. Let me give you a couple of options. This one is common. <clears throat> you got to get them before they get you. You ain't going to catch me slipping. Maybe not for some of you guys, but where I'm from, that was a, a fundamental ethos. You never wanted to be seen as weak, and if you were seen as weak, then you were gone. It was just that imminent. So you had to, you had, you had to catch them first. So everything you did was, was foundational to, and, and what's interesting is the statement that I just made is actually not what's foundational. There's something deeper, isn't there? The deeper issue is I don't want to be seen as weak. 
If you don't want to be seen as weak, which by the way is a foundational thing for some of you, you just have a different statement than the one that I just used about you can't catch me slipping. If you don't want to be seen as weak, how will you live out your Christian life? What will your Christian life look like? When it is the will to power. Is that what Jesus did? All power, all glory. And yet, he received the stroke that was the crucifixion. He received, uh, remember from our time uh, this past Easter, how we, we talked about how he was mocked and his beard was ripped out and he was spit on and he was told to prophesy. Think about if you had the power to call down fire from heaven and incinerate them, how would you hold that back when they're treating you that way? Just come up and try to touch my face. Don't do that, right? It's not a good idea. I, I can't even imagine how, if I had that kind of power and you ripped out what poor facial hair I have already, right? The whole catfish thing I got going on if I let it grow. If you ripped that, I, I can't even, I don't even know how to get my head around that. And yet Jesus, in great strength in his weakness, to glorify God because he had a fun, foundational, fundamental uh, and firm thing that was guiding him in all he did. He had his theology, and that was the theology that God would be glorified in everything he did. And granted, you may say, Jesus was perfect, and praise God he was, because that gets applied to us, by the way. And you may say, but I'm not perfect, and you're right. You are right, which means you need to be all the more mindful, don't you? If Jesus had to pray, if Jesus needed the Holy Spirit, if Jesus needed at times to reorient and say, not my will, but your will be done, how much more you and I? That we would be careful and mindful of how we live and think through what is driving us. Maybe what drives you is the idol or the idolatry of your children. For those of you who are parents, there's a devastating one because they're not perfect and you're not either. And it's an impossible task apart from the grace of God, apart from the resurrection, apart from all of the power and the glory that comes with the Holy Spirit. Maybe what drives you is uh, uh, your job. Maybe what drives you is how people see you. You want to be seen as successful, strong, what beautiful, whatever it may be. And you may say, well, how am I going to figure out what this is, this foundational thing? Just go back and review um, the last few kind of tense interactions you've had with anybody. It's there. You will find it there. Because when you are fighting for something, that's where what you believe comes out most. And for some of you, if you're like me, that's kind of embarrassing, actually. Because I fight for some pretty stupid stuff. But there's something to it, and God is gracious to reveal it in those moments. So what you're going to have to do is go back and sift back over that ground. The other time that you can kind of check too is when you reacted to something and, and maybe you reacted in a good Christ-like way too, by the way. That'd, that'd be wonderful. I pray that'd be true of all of us. But we do, we get exposed in our moments 
when we, we don't have enough time to think about it and what lies all the way underneath comes out. You may say, yeah, but I, I got a bad temper. Are you working on it? Is that, your, is that it? Is that your firm foundation? I got a bad temper and therefore I am, I am free to, to let fly. Which, by the way, exposes something even deeper now, doesn't it? That the world ought to bend to your will. And when it doesn't, you're going to let it know. Right? And so I want for us, part of if we're going to grow in this series, this question is absolutely critical. It's absolutely critical. And, and so what serves as foundational to what you know, right? So what, what's going to drive what you read, what you listen to, what you watch, what you ingest, what you build yourself up with, uh, and then how you live that out becomes critical to understanding how, in the, where, how do you need to grow? Where are you within the frame of, of maturing as a Christian? And then you can begin to pray about how the Spirit may change those things. And we need to do that from young to old because, again, uh, Matt and I were just talking about this morning that probably the, the, their, their movie statements that kind of somehow end up defining a generation uh, oddly, uh, for, for mine, in some measure, at least for part of the generation, the I am your father, which is so weird that that would define a generation, but it, it really did in so many respects. And it really, it, it speaks to the complexity of parenthood, now doesn't it? Nothing is neutral. So the whole thing with Darth Vader turning out to be Luke's, this is the only time you're going to hear a Star Wars reference, I promise you. I don't know what just happened. I feel like I'm speaking in tongues. However, stay with me, uh, think about the complexity of that and how it defined a generation that was struggling coming out of the 60s and 70s. Star Wars is what, 78? 77? Yeah, we got plenty of nerds in here. Yes, 77. And so, so you think about what was being struggled with culturally. And how that came to have this impact on generation. Now, it's, and I didn't even see this film, uh, it's from Infinity War. It's poor Tom Holland dying. And if I spoiled it for you, I'm sorry, you should have seen it by now. Uh, but Spider-Man's like, don't let me die, Tony Stark, or whatever he says, I don't even know. And so, and so it's this whole like, like struggling with existence, which is fascinating because you understand the fundamental premise of that movie was the planet's overpopulated. So you have this very complex villain, Thanos, who comes and says, in order to make this world a better place, I've got to kill half of you. What did Jesus say? In order to make this world a better place, I'm going to die for all of you. Right? And so we have all these things. We could get into music. Oh, my gosh. And it varies from slight subculture to subculture. We have all these little statements and sayings that are so definitive to us and we don't really think about, but, but wait a minute. It's, it's pithy and it fits in 160 characters or less or on a bumper sticker somewhere, but is it good? Is it what we should be living by? Is it what should be shaping us? Okay? So, Peter's going to argue the resurrection ought to shape you above everything else, which is newness of life. Hear what uh, Karen Jobes says about this section of the letter. She actually gets into verses 10 through 12 as well. She says, 1 Peter 1, 3 through 12 opens the body of the letter by providing a theological and hermeneutical basis or a firm foundation, firm indicative, 
for the Christian life that introduces the major motifs and themes of the letter. So what Karen just said is the resurrection is the most important thing that Peter is trying to get across. Everything comes out of that. So everything we read, we have to go back and consider the resurrection of Christ. So with that being said, let's step into the first part. Look at verses three through five. This is Peter's doxological indicative, and it's our living hope in Christ's resurrection. If you would hear the reading of God's word. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. So Peter comes out of his greeting where he's defined them by by the fact they are elect exiles. And he starts off by praising the Lord for something that he's done. Now notice in these first uh, three verses, what is it that the audience has done? Someone? Nothing. Not one thing. Who's done it all? God has. The redeeming, the renewing, the restoring, it is all him. He is the first mover. Listen to what it says again. Peter says, blessed be God and father of our Lord Jesus Christ, according to his great mercy. Now, mercy is his willingness to forgive the sins of the people. It's his willingness to continue with even when we don't want him to come near us. It's his willingness to condescend and pursue even when we tell him, get away from me. But according to his great mercy, he has, and this word is important, caused. So what's the cause? Someone? I know, you've got a pacifier in your mouth, and that's cute. Someone else with a pacifier in their mouth. What has he caused? Don't be afraid of being wrong. This is the safest place to be wrongs in here, not out there. What's that? He's caused us to be born again according to his mercy. So it all comes from his character, from his being which is good news to every single one of us because you know what you are left to your own devices, don't you? Or do Because left to your own devices, you will never come. And what you will come to will be the God of your own understanding and built in your image that you can control, thus why idolatry is such a big thing. Again, uh, uh, I went to one Georgia football game in my life, and there was a guy next to me. They were playing Auburn. They beat Auburn's brains out this day. And, and the guy had a hunk of wood in his hand. I think I've told this story before. And he's just screaming his head off, going, give him the wood. And I was like, hey, hey man, what, what is that? He's like, I don't have any idea. <laughs> but, man, he was, it, was, it was working. It was wor- I, I witnessed it, I think. I'm not sure. 
really, I mean, think about it. Why? This is a grown man who has a job, has a family, who thought that carrying this little block of wood into a football game was going to radically, cosmically transform what was taking place on the field. And I'm sure if, if I'd have said that to him, he would have said, when you say it like that, you're just being a jerk. <laughs> but we do it too. We do it too. We just don't have anybody sitting next to us that can point it out all the time. Which is why a lot of people don't sit next to me in places I go. Susan, is it not true? Everywhere we go, there's like this Holy Spirit seat stays open where God's protecting people from me or something. I don't know. It's, it's true. Every, every concert we've ever been to, that person's either been killed cosmically or lost or something, but it's always an open seat. It's, it's great for me because I'm hot-natured, but I worry about the why. So what he says is you, you have been caused, it's all on God's side, to be born again to a living hope. Now, think about this for a second. Born again. What does that mean? That is transformative. That means to be made new again. Here's what's beautiful about when we say that Christ is coming to make all things new, we're actually slightly inaccurate. You know why? Because it's already begun. It's begun in you. He's making us new first. The sanctification process that leads to glorification, the fact that our lives are hit on high, in fact, we could say it past tense, we've actually been made new. We spend our lives discovering what exactly that means. And so we are the first fruits, you understand? What a gift, and we have been offered up to God in this respect. We have been born again. And he says, to a living hope. Now, given all the struggles that we have had, many of you, many of us, with death over the past few weeks, I would hope this would be a balm of Gilead to us. That it is a living hope. This is not a, a hope that, that you have to have your fingers crossed and get it just right in order for it to be true. It's true even when you get it wrong. It's still there even when you miss it. It is still moving toward its end goal, even when you lose sight. It's a living hope. It doesn't die based on anything we do. Remember, who caused it? Who bought it? It's eternal. Don't forget that. And it's a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. And what's so beautiful about this is that when Christ rose from the dead, it was declared that he was not guilty and that was then applied to all of God's children. That his righteousness is now our righteousness. No, I don't get it either. And the math and the alchemy, it doesn't work. And praise God. Because it, according to anything in this world, of what I've seen, I don't want it to work according to the ways and thoughts of this world. We're watching Band of Brothers right now, so I'm slightly, you know, in the World War II setting of things. And so if, if we're going to leave it, in, in fact, just reading the headlines, the Korean leaders accusing Trump of being a gangster on this whole nuclear deal thing, right? Uh, we, we got stuff going on all over the world that's just, it's just insanity at times. And I am so thankful that 
Christ doesn't work according, the math doesn't work according to the limited ways and means of this world. So the resurrection transcends all that. It shatters all of that and says, come, take my yoke upon you, for my burden is easy and my yoke is light. Come, ye who are weary and heavy laden with the math of this world, with the alchemy of this world, and be made new again. Walk in newness of life. What a gift to us who spend so much of our time in the valley of the shadow. And he goes on. Now here's, it's, it gets even better. It's an inheritance. You know what that means? You know what that word means? That's an Old Testament type word. It means it's yours. It means that it has been in, it granted to you. You are now a son and daughter, not a slave, not someone in the back part of the kingdom, not someone kind of on the periphery, your family. You're, you're gonna get, your seat is, is set aside at the marriage supper of the Lamb. You're going to be there. Amen? It is sure. It is an inheritance. It is yours. And here's, it gets even better. It's not perishable. It doesn't have a date on it. It is not going away. It cannot die. It's yours. And it goes on. It's also undefiled. That means it's pure. That means it is, uh, for all intents and purposes, it is like God himself. You're not getting some, some, some bad, something that's, that's just not that good, right? For those of you who saw White Snake last night, how was it? They weren't good to start with. They just have gotten worse. God bless David Coverdale. I hope he comes to Christ. And so... It's not like that. It's not, it's not a bait and switch. It's not like when you go to eat at your favorite restaurant and, and you get sick from it and it ruins you forever. This is undefiled. It cannot be defiled. It cannot be diminished. And here's why that's good news. Who most of all do you credit with the defiling of anything in your life? If you're a Christian, it ought to be you. And so you can't even mess this up. For as much as you may feel like you fail and you don't get right, this, this is made right. You don't have to worry about it. And it goes on. It gives us one more. And it's unfading. Its glory will never diminish. You will never, ever be able to tire of its goodness and its beauty and its glory for your life. Which is why... We've got to do the work of, of constantly coming back to it. I know there are times, and I've said this, I'm sure, as well as a congregant. I mean, can we move on to something deeper? Deeper than eternal, undefiled, unfading, inherited, like, really? Deeper than that? The answer is no, we can't. And we ought not, and we ought to want to come back to it frequently, which is why we structure our liturgy that hopefully you hear the gospel no matter what I say, before I ever say it, which is just protection for me because I will defile, I will fade, I will make it perishable because I'm human and sometimes act less than human. And it gets even better than that. 
Not only is it yours, not only is it uh, not going to perish, not only is it not able to be defiled, and not only will it retain its glory, its value, right? It's not like the car you drive off the lot and instantaneously you lose 10 grand on the thing or five grand or whatever it may be. But it's also, listen at what Peter says, kept in heaven for you who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. So you have been given something that cannot be taken from you. You have been given something that you can't throw away. And you've heard from me uh, for 10, the first 10 years of my Christianity, I really tried to throw it away. I wanted to take the mantle off. I remember Susan and I were on the beach in North Carolina <coughs> in the Outer Banks. I was so furious at God because, because he wasn't doing what I wanted him to do. Anybody ever had that experience before? And I was raging, and I kind of had this impression, if you've seen Forrest Gump, where, where Dan is strapped in the crow's nest, and he's screaming at God, is that all you got? Which is really a bad thing to ask God, by the way. Uh, but, but I was, and it was also reminded me, if you guys have seen Arrested Development, when, when Job is trying to throw the letter in the ocean and it keeps blowing back at him, and it's just like this futile thing. And it's like, he's trying to be all dramatic and it just is ridiculous, right? So this is what, this, picture all that happening on the beach with poor Susan trying to keep me in the banks of the river as I'm raging at the sea as, as a metaphor for God. You know what she asked me? She said, what if this is all there is? What if God redeeming you, what if God loving you and making you a husband and a father and a physical therapist, what if that was enough? And I said, that's stupid, I don't wanna hear that. This is what I say when I hear something really piercing. So if you ever hear me say that, know you've landed home. <laughs> or if I get to spitting. So I, the next day I told her, I said, all right, I need some time. I got to process this. And I went to a coffee shop, as is my way. Uh, apparently that's where God hangs out. And, uh, and so I, I went and I pr had to process, what if, what if that was it? What, 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 why is my redemption not near enough? Why, why all this that's, that's been said here? What if that was where the Bible ended? Would it not be enough for us? And if it's not, you need to wrestle with it. Because this is the summum bonum. This is the highest good. Your redemption. Your resurrection in Christ. The fact that death can no longer sting you. That death no longer can claim you that Satan no longer can stand before the throne and say this man or woman is defiled and worthy of destruction. I love how Gary Larson interprets hell in the far side. There's one where they're getting coffee and the guy sips it and he goes, man, the coffee's cold. They thought of everything. And so that can no longer be true of us 
uh, we will not have to endure that. And that, that is the best news of all. And, and that's what should cause us to now live in light of that truth instead of demanding all these other things. And what's fascinating, you know what I was angry about? I was angry that God hadn't made me a pastor yet. As if I was ready. And now that I'm a pastor, you know what I wonder? <laughs> what was I thinking? No, no, I, I do love what I do, but it, it's, it's, it's not something any man, woman, or child should want casually. Um, and, and it's not something that you determine when you're ready. And it's not something you get to decide. And that's probably true of all the other vocations in life now, isn't it? And so what we have is this beautiful and firm foundation. So here's what I want to challenge you as a congregation to do. Take these three verses, and no, we're not yet done. We do have a couple more to go, uh, but I will be briefer with those because this is such a strong and important foundation. I want you to spend uh, time meditating on them. Let them seep into your soul. If, if you could, memorize them and challenge your family to do that. In fact, this is the only verse your kids ever memorized. It'd be a good one. It would be important for them to enjoy and think about and meditate on because it's what we're going to spend eternity doing. And so, listen to what David Helm says about this. He says, the remedy for humanity's exile, the soul's homesickness, is found only in the resurrection of Jesus from the dead. Jesus, the elect and chosen one of God, who voluntarily left his home and descended to an exilic-like existence on this earth, has returned to heaven. It is through his resurrection from the dead and his ascension to heaven that we who go by his name have been born again to a living hope. So what are the indicatives in this verse? It's important for us to hash those out. The indicatives are in no particular order, but maybe in order we should just follow the verse, is that God loved us first, didn't he? He being the cause for him to give us all that power, all that glory, for him to raise us from the dead is for him to say, I love you. Don't forget that from Malachi. And remember, John says the same thing. Why do we love? Because he first loved us. So we can never move on from God loved us first and he poured out all that was available in heaven to redeem and purchase us for himself. And he does that through the person and work of Jesus Christ, of which the resurrection is the most declarative. If all we had was the crucifixion, we have a savior who, who would have died just like us. If he doesn't rise from the dead, he's guilty of the wages of sin. Now, that would be kind of him to do that for us, but it doesn't make us a whole lot better off. It would end up just being a good myth for us to tell one another. But because he rose from the dead, because he has granted uh, new life, but, and because he has defeated sin and hell and death and Hades and Satan, we, we are able to stand we are able to stand before the very throne of God in hope, receiving both mercy and grace when we need it in a time of trouble. And the thing I would ask you is, what impact do these indicatives have on how you live? 
How often do you think through kind of how you're living and things that you're doing and considering in light of God's love for you? In light of the fact that God has been raised from the dead. And now you may say, but sometimes I don't feel it. That's exactly when you need to dive into it. That's exactly when you need to do the cultivating work to get back into it. It doesn't mean that it has departed from you and it doesn't mean that it's no longer true. It means that you need it more than ever. And this is where we as community become so important because sometimes we get tired. And if I hadn't had Susan on the beach that day, I'd have just kept throwing the letter in the wind and it had kept blowing back in my face and I wouldn't have understood any of it. Praise God that his spirit was at work in my wife to have enough courage to say to me what she said. Which, by the way, you know, that was kind of a dicey thing. I've never hit Susan. I wouldn't have thrown her in the ocean, but who knows, right? You can go catch me slipping. But I, I slip all the time. I get caught all the time. So praise God that we have people around us who will speak into our darkness, into our valley of the shadow to say, come out into the light. Walk in the power of the resurrection and to dwell with us until we are able to do so. Now let's turn back to the text and look at verses six through nine. This is the tested genuineness of our faith, the promise of and in suffering. In this, you rejoice. Let me pause. What do we rejoice in? All that goodness that came before in verses three through five. God's love for us, the resurrection of Christ, our, our newness of life, the living hope. In this, you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials. Let me pause. That if necessary is very important. So does God demand that you suffer? No, he doesn't demand that you suffer. He says, if necessary, you will. But here's the point. You got to remember who and where you are. You are in a fallen world. What is the likelihood that you're going to suffer? As an exile, as one who is other, you're going to. But this makes it clear that it's not God who's saying, no, you must suffer this. However, he's sovereign, and that's good news. And again, remember, the math doesn't all work. We still got the book of Job to remind us, right? But what that tells us is that if you are suffering, it will have meaning because of God's sovereignty. In some way, shape, or form, it will have meaning. Here's the hard part. Will you know? Is you knowing the highest meaning that comes from your suffering? No. Because remember, God is cosmic. He's not individualistic. He's not, this is not your own personal Jesus. Thank you, Depeche Mode. This is not your own self-religion. Thank you, America. This is not your own thing. You are part of a greater story. And sometimes you don't get to know. And that doesn't change the fact that you must trust in faith. That's why it says to test the genuineness of your faith. So, the tested, so that the tested genuineness of your faith, 
more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Though you have not seen him, you love him. Though you do not now see him, you believe in him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory, obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. Did you hear what he just said? The most important thing for you in your life is for your faith to be tested and for Christ to be glorified. Now, if that's true, I I totally get, and you should understand why, we're all trying to control that. Right? We're all trying to control it. My roommate one time uh, did something terrible in a drunken state, and and he actually hurt this other girl, not permanently, but he tried to make up for it by taking this part of the sticker bush that she, he threw her into and poke himself slightly twice. Do you think that made up for the fact that she landed in the sticker bush and probably needed stitches? Not even close. But that's what we're doing. We're like, all right, God, I'll tell you what. I, let, me, let, me, uh, let me decide. Let me, let me do some things uh, and keep you at bay. So you don't decide what my suffering will be. I, I'll, I'll choose my own. If you, if you don't mind. And that doesn't ever work. And we, and we do, we, 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 we kind of also avoid each other when we're suffering, you see, because we don't want to catch it. We think it's like some sort of common cold that if, if suffering is kind of going on, we, we begin to kind of back away instead of leaning in and going, hey, I don't understand this either, and I'm sorry, and I will stand my watch to see if he's going to tell us why, but if he doesn't, we have to trust. Because he has, in so many situations and cases, been good before. This is why we must remember we have to tell each other the story. We have to share in community. We cannot do this alone. And so God says, your suffering, it will have meaning. It will have necessity. I love the way John Calvin responds to it, although I kind of don't like it either. But he says, Peter's purpose was to show that God does not thus try his people without reason. For if God afflicted us without cause, it would be way too grievous for us to bear. Hence, Peter has taken an argument for consolation from the design of God, not because the purpose always appears to us, but because we ought to be fully persuaded that it ought to be so because it is God's will. Now, those are words on a page that are incredibly hard to swallow in certain circumstances, are they not? And we may find some comfort in them in that, hey, look, us knowing the purpose is not always the goal. We know the ultimate purpose, which is God's redemption in the world. and, and, And so there's things that are at work behind things that we just, we don't and cannot understand. And even, we've talked about this, even if I explained it to you, not me or God explained it to you, would that make you go, good, I'm glad that happened. I'm glad that suffering came to pass. I am glad that there's all this destruction. No. And, and, and even if you could see that it, it, it went on to make a difference in some way, while you can give praise for that, at the same time, you stand in the tension of grieving the fact that it was necessary in the first place. We have to remember our theology. We have to remember where we are. We have to remember who we are. Elect exiles in a fallen world 
that is at war with God. This is not neutral ground. It is, seeks to destroy his creatorliness and you, its image bearer, at every turn. And so why is suffering guaranteed for us as Christians in a fallen world? Because we stand in opposition to all the principalities and powers. We just do. And try as you might, it comes up sooner or later. I was an artist for a while, uh, and one of the darkest, um, I, I think, cultural worlds is art because it's so kind of free-flowing and anything goes and, uh, you know, having an open mind that, that just takes in everything is supposedly a good thing, which I don't think is true, by the way. Try it with your children. Uh, and so, uh, but I would always, I would do these art residencies and we had to eat together every night and I always tried to hide the fact that I was a Christian because once the cat was out of the bag, it was, it could get weird. And every single solitary time, the Holy Spirit on the first night would expose me. And one of the nights in particular, where I, got, I was known as the Bible guy from there forward, this young lady said, my mom said I need to read Ephesiastes or something. I was like, oh, well, was it Ecclesiastes or was it Ephesiastes? Oh, Bible guy, you must be a Christian because I knew the difference, I guess. But it was interesting how it opened up conversations that were interesting. It kind of reminded me in a very small way of Jesus and Nicodemus. You know, Nicodemus comes to Jesus by night. Why? Because he don't want anybody to see him talking to Jesus. So I'd have people come to the cabin and they'd knock and they'd kind of look around and they'd want to talk about Christianity. And then they would leave and they would say, hey, don't tell anybody I was here and quit telling people you're a Christian. You're actually a legit good artist. You're going to ruin this. And so in, 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 this, in the same way, you, you can't protect yourself. And in fact, you protecting you is actually maybe potentially destroying someone else. Keeping all that good from them, it's amazing how hungry people truly are once you get past the veneer. They're asking the same questions. Why? Why, why is suicide on the rise in this country? when we have everything we could possibly need, it seems? Why is it so high among middle schoolers for crying out loud? It's not just because 13 Reasons is free on Netflix, by the way, although that hadn't helped a whole lot because it's now given a different thing, right? It's a way to get back at people. But if, if we're doing so well, if we have all we need, if technology's helped us this much, why? Why are we more lost than ever it seems in history and purposeless? Because we all have a God-sized hole in our hearts and we are longing. So we as Christians have a fantastic opportunity to step into those valleys of the shadows with our neighbors, our coworkers, and our friends, because I guarantee you, somebody around you is suffering. And if they're suffering without the resurrection, that means they're suffering without ultimate meaning. And that is a destructive force unlike any other unleashed on this planet. And you, you have the words of this life. We'll get into that more when Peter begins to challenge us to be a people who now take all this good that we have and start to give it away. But for now, 1 Peter 1, 3 through 9 teaches us that Christ's resurrection serves as our firm foundation, which 
transforms us to a living hope, eternally securing our salvation, and it grants meaning to our guaranteed suffering as elect exiles in a fallen world. Listen to how Thomas Schreiner looks at all of this. He says, those who are suffering persecution in Asia Minor, which is the audience, are not dashed to the ground by their troubles. They look to the future with the sure confidence that inestimable, inestimable blessing awaits them. Nor is their confidence baseless superstition. It is grounded in and secured by the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Their hope, in other words, is the hope of resurrection, triumph over death. Hence, whatever happens to them in this world is trivial compared to the blessing of the future resurrection. And amen. Let's pray. Father, thank you for all of the wonderful foundational indicatives, which strongest of all is your love for us, that you condescended, you came to us, and you, you have given to us life more abundant. You have given us a living hope. You have, in your great mercy, caused us to be born again. You've given us something that is ours. It makes us sons and daughters, not mercenaries, um, not, not slaves, not even just casual friends. We are family. And this that you've given us, it is imperishable, it is undefiled, and it will not fade, and you protect it and secure it for all eternity until Christ returns. And that treasure chest will be opened up at the return of Christ. And Lord, may we with great joy look forward to that and even celebrate as we get glimpses of it between the now and the not yet. God, help us to see that our suffering is guaranteed in a fallen world given who we are, but it is not without meaning. Help us to live in the tension when we don't know the meaning or don't see the purpose. Help us to grow in our faith. Help our faith to be tested and be found genuine, greater than gold. God, would you in the power of the Holy Spirit this morning draw us to you. May as we sing this last song this morning and receive the benediction, may we do so with great joy because of all of this. In Christ's name, amen.